0: Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. We're going to get right to it today. We'll see um, if I can kind of compress this a little bit. I'm not doing really good with that, but we'll try. So, go ahead and stand with me if you would today, the book of Revelation. We're in a study, for those who you new, working our way through this book. Really trying to understand the overall jest and meaning of a section of Scripture that we're covering, and then looking to make application Certainly when John penned these words, via the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his day, um, he intended for these words, and they did to have application for their lives. And that primary application was encouragement to serve the Lord in a greater way, knowing that a day of reward would come and that sin um, would be judged one day. They would be vindicated. And so today we want to have application as well as we look into these uh, exceptionally amazing stories um, let's not get caught up in dates and times as much as intent and a change of heart in our own lives. So, Revelation chapter 12, verse number 1, uh, we'll be introduced to a new vision by the Apostle John. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and he cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was cut up into God into to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the privilege, the opportunity to assemble here together. I trust the time has been already encouraging. The Lord has drawn our hope heart to you in gratitude, appreciation, and Lord, in hope. Now, Father, if we look into your Word, we certainly ask for the Holy Spirit to give guidance, Lord, that we'd understand your intent, Lord, what is being witnessed and seen here, recorded, Lord, so we might understand it, so we might, Lord, do something with, Lord, the knowledge that we leave here with today. Lord, we need to make application. So I pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, as always, for honoring God by standing in the reading of His Word. The Bible gives to us a number of immutable principles. And by that, I mean things that are axiomatic, a cause and effect. If this happens, then this is going to happen. And one of those axiomatic principles is this biblical truth, that pride will always go before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, haughtiness and pride can be manifest in a great number of ways. It can be in arrogance, it can be in stubbornness, it can be in a refusal to do what is right and true and, and good. But the Bible tells us is that pride, this haughtiness always goes before And will result in some kind of fall. Now, many of us have personally experienced this immutable principle in our own life. We've allowed ourselves to be prideful to say something that was not true, and in time to be discovered in that, or to do something that we knew was wrong. As as I've taught our class this morning, our sins always find us out. And that doesn't necessarily always mean that we'll be discovered in our sin, but it does mean this, is that sin will always have an impact and influence in our life that is negative. We'll be marked by it. And so, we've witnessed this in our own lives. We've witnessed it in the lives of others, politicians and athletes, business leaders, uh, In those the lives around us we've seen, pride going before destruction. But the most infamous and tragic illustration of this dynamic, and the fall uh, that had the most far-reaching consequences as a result of pride, was Satan's prideful uprising and his rebellion against the God of Heaven. In Satan's initial impulse of sinful pride, Satan, then known as Lucifer, sought to exalt himself uh, to and above the very throne of God. It was an exceeding prideful ambition. In Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse number 13, these are the words of Lucifer. He said this, I will ascend into heaven, and I will exalt my throne above the stars, meaning the angels of God, I will sit on the mount of the congregation, speaking of the throne, and on the sides of the north, a reference to heaven. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And he says this in his most arrogant statement, I will be like the most high God. But in this prideful attempt, Lucifer was cast down and became what we call the devil, Satan. Uh, He is the prince of the kingdom of this world. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 15, he says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell and to the sides of the pit. Um, This is literally uh, pride coming before the, the ultimate fall, and that is Satan one day finding himself in the pits of hell. The Bible says that one day we as the congregants of heaven will look down on Satan and we will say, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? son of the morning. Luke 10:18 tells us that in his attempt to gain ascendancy over God, that he fell like lightning from heaven, cast down from his exalted place in the heavens as what the Bible calls the anointed cherub. We've, we've done some discussion of what cherubim and seraphim may be. These incredibly uh, exalted creatures that stand around the throne whose duty is to praise God and in of themselves are magnificent and wonderful beings. But Satan went from that to, into that pinnacle of God's creation. He became the enemy of God because of pride. And he became to us an adversary. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12, The Bible says this, speaking of Satan, or Lucifer, before he fell, he says, thou sealest up the sum. In other words, you are complete. You're full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Can you imagine that being a description of who you are? You're you're the sum. You're the end. You're You're complete. You're full of beauty and wisdom. He was absolutely stunning. The Bible says, Thou hast been in Eden, in the garden of God. What a privileged place. He said, Every precious stone was thy covering. He was made uh, with tablets or musical instruments emanating from his body and had the ability to praise God in an amazing way and reflect the Shekinah glory of God. Ezekiel 28, 14, He was the anointed cherub that covereth And he walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. I'm not sure what that is, but that's pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. This was the exalted position that this creature held. That was perfect. Until. Until pride. And after pride, he was described as having iniquity. Being the adversary, the destroyer. Profane and defiler. And by the way... Our adversary still plays those roles today in this world. He's still seeking those whom he may devour. He still seeks to steal and kill and destroy. Since his fall, Satan has been engaged in a great cosmic war through the ages against heaven and against the, the, the likeness of God in us. As mentioned last week, there are two great kingdoms in this universe, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And today you and I belong to one of the other. There's no ambiguity. What we do and who we are belongs to one kingdom. What we speak, what we say has its originations in one or the other kingdom. We either come from the kingdom above, have been born again in the Lord Jesus Christ, or in new, what we would state neutrality, or indifference, or an animosity. We are the kingdom of this world destined for hell. I would say to you that neutrality is not an option for us. Matthew 12:30 tells us that He is not, Jesus said that He is not His for me, is then of course against me. Satan has been in a long rebellion, and aiding him in his rebellion to destroy us have been the hosts of Heaven. One-third of the stars, or the angels of Heaven, who were so enamored with Lucifer that they were willing to follow him, somehow believing that he could dethrone their creator. And today, these are leading a rebellion in the heart of men. This is the cosmic, ongoing battle of the ages. It has been raging for millennia. Now, the greatest epic wars of Satan are still yet to come they are still ahead in the future. During the seven year tribulation, there will be this great attempt by Satan. Um, He will feel somewhat emboldened by the rapture of the church in its absence, uh, the diminishing presence of the Holy Spirit and the greater number of demons having been released from the abyss in in the river Euphrates where many have been held in bonds until the day, since the days of Genesis. In this great horde of evil, The devil will feel somewhat emboldened and he will create a great battle. He will gather the armies of the world together in what we call the battle of Armageddon. Uh, He will then, of course, be defeated at the second advent. He will have another rebellion at the end of the thousand year millennial reign. And then our great adversary will be cast into the lake of fire. The seventh trumpet has sounded in the previous chapter. the events of that are still yet to unfold, but it announces His complete destruction and doom. The trumpet sounded in chapter 11. Its effects it produces are really don't, will not be felt in our study until we get to chapters 15 through 18. And so now we're studying chapters 12, 13, and 14. And these chapters contain something interesting. These chapters review in brief for us um, kind of a composition of from the beginning to to the very end of Satan's war against God in His reign of terror. It's a window to the world that was and that will be regarding the relationship of this adversary to us and to the Lord whom He rebelled against. Uh, We're going to work our way through these symbolic verses here this morning and we're going to try to discover their meaning and then make a brief application at the end. So, if you look with me into this first verse, this twelfth chapter of the book of Revelation, the Bible says that there was a there appeared a great wonder in heaven. And the word "great" is re, is used in this chapter, uh, not just in our text, but the remaining verses a number of times. It, and the word "great" is where we get the word "mega" from, meaning huge or enormous. And so we have an epic sign. The word "wonder" means sign. We have an we have something that's extraordinary in, in size and scope and scale. It's actually witnessed in the skies of heaven by John. But it's not just big in its scale, it's, it's significance and mega in its importance. In its effect, in its impact upon humanity and creation. And this, this scene, this mega sign, this representative vision that John is going to see um, is played out in the theater of the sky. And John sees a woman, and she's clothed or surrounded by the, what we call the brilliance of the sun. This is, this is the idea of uh, emanating light that's beautiful and wondrous and amazing. Uh, it, it, it speaks of the exalted nature of this, of this woman. And at her feet is the moon. And it's the idea, again, that there's some kind of power given to this woman. That she, she sits in a place of prominence. It's, it's, it's the idea that she is surrounded kind of by a glory. And then on her head is a crown. And it's, it's bejeweled with seven stars. Um, in our study of Revelation. A, a stars have been either angel or men, and I'll speak to a moment, most likely this refers to uh, 12, if I said seven, forgive me, 12 men. And this woman now, in verse 2, is clothed in glory and prominence, and she is with child. And she is experiencing in this moment that John sees this, the travail, the pain of, of, of birth. In verse 3, John immediately sees another character that bursts upon the scene of this great drama in the sky, And again, the word mega is used because it is significant. And it describes a great mega red. And the red is significant because it means violence and war and bloodshed. A great red dragon. And dragon has been used historically in the Old Testament as an enemy of God, of an enemy of men, a great and terrible creature. Uh, the word dragon was used to describe the Pharaoh of Egypt. It was described to uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It, it was used described to describe these great kings who had opposition to God's people and sought to destroy them. And John sees a great red dragon. And this dragon, as is also described, in, in the Old Testament has multiple heads, seven to be specific, with ten horns and seven crowns. It's, it's an incredible vision. And then John sees others burst upon this cast of characters in verse four. this dragon is not alone. And by the power of his tail, he has a following of one third of beings, of creatures that belonged in heaven once upon a time, but are now following the dragon and uh, giving themselves to his mission. Now their mission and purpose of the vision is stated quite clearly. The dragon is waiting for the child of the woman to be born that he might destroy it. Satan is the ruler of this world, getting ahead of myself a little bit, and he sees the child as a threat. This child is coming into his kingdom, into his world, and he's not just coming in indifference, but he's coming to rule and reign the world that Satan rules. And he comes with a great iron scepter, and the idea of the iron is it's a scepter and a rule that cannot be broken, it cannot be squelched. Satan knows this child holds this power. And so he is waiting to devour the child that's emanating from the woman. And the text goes on to tell us that this child is such import, that's such significant that will come and rule the nations with a rod of iron, that at some point in history he will be exalted himself to the throne room of God. It's an amazing person. And then we are told this woman Flees into the wilderness in a day of extraordinary persecution, and that she will be kept safe there by the Lord Himself for a period of three and a half years. And she will be fleeing into the wilderness, a place of provision made by God, supernaturally protected by God from the pursuit of the dragon. During a period of, again, of extraordinary persecution, over all that belongs to her. That, that's an incredible scene, isn't it? That's an amazing story, a vision that the Apostle John sees. I think retelling it the way it was, I think now the characters should become obvious and clear to us. Most of us already know this story. We've read it many times in our Bible, not uh, such as this recorded in our text. But the initial vision of the woman, That was adorned with the sun, the moon, and, and crown and stars, isn't this incredibly similar to the dream that Joseph had many years ago? Joseph, whose life and lineage in part would give rise to the nation of Israel, had an extraordinary vision. As the youngest of Jacob's sons, he saw himself lifted up. And that the sun, his father, the moon, his mother, and the stars, his brother would all bow down and worship him way. But he would play a significant role and, in history. It's very similar to this in Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 and 11. And it also is representative of his life. Joseph, before he got to that throne, went through a life of incredible struggle. And he was, he was uh, uh, attacked by the evil one in many ways, but then he was protected by God and exalted. So in identifying the woman and related to Joseph's dreams, we discover, I believe, that the woman is representative of the nation of Israel. And in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, Ezekiel chapter 16, 32 35, the book of Hosea 2 2 Isaiah 50, and many, many other places in the Old Testament, Israel is decided as a wife, as a woman, and in, in, in the negative connotations of her conduct, a harlot. And so we see here, in a cosmic way, the nation of Israel being upheld for John to see. On a cosmic scale of human history, Israel has been the vessel through which God has chosen to work to bring to mankind a redeemer, our Savior, the Messiah. He used these people. We call them God's chosen people. They're described as important in the Bible. And their history, for the most part, has been played out. And yet, it's described in 70 weeks in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, yet there remains one week, which is representative of a seven-year period, that is still to come. And this is what John is witnessing. He is witnessing kind of this, from the very beginning of Satan all the way to the end, the role that this dragon plays in the persecution of Israel. And then, of course, what she gives birth to, our Messiah. And then her ongoing persecution. Israel, from this standpoint holds a place of great prominence in glory in history and in future eschatology. It's why in the vision she's arrayed in the sun in glory and brilliance, this place of prominence with the moon under her feet. And we believe, it's uh, my opinion, that the crown she wears with the 12 tribes are representative of the 12, 12 jewels are represented the 12 tribes of Israel. But since his fall, Satan, the obvious second character, the great red dragon, in this vision has been at war with God, at war with Israel, and at war with those who identify with the God of heaven. We understand and we know that in his desire to ascend to the throne of heaven, Satan's mission failed. And along with those who followed him, pledged fealty to him, they have been cast down to the earth, their mission failing in heaven. And so we see that the mother, Israel, is with child. And we see in this story this offspring, which we understand now to be the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the Savior. He's the Redeemer of God's creation. And he's threatening in our text the position that is held by the God of this world, the devil. Satan in history. And in our Bible, has long tried to destroy the purposes of God. When he failed in heaven, he came to the earth, being cast there. And then we know we hear several stories where Satan has fought against the people of God, the intents of God. Um, he has long fought against the woman. Of, of course, he tried to overthrow God on earth originally. Um, by his deception in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Of course, that having some success in plunging humanity in sin, God uh, initiates a rescue plan. He knew this would happen through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now the devil's fighting these purposes in Christ. So Satan goes to war with Israel, trying to prevent the Messiah before he comes. He tried to conquer them in Egypt through Pharaoh, tries to enslave the people of God to thwart God. And then there was the great murder intended in the days of Esther and Haman that were thwarted by God. He tried to crush them using the nations and the kingdoms around Israel during the days of the judges and the kings. He tried to stop the family line of God and and Christ uh, by poisoning humanity in the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, Of course, he, he he, he tried to destroyed the bloodline with the curse in Jeconiah in the Old Testament. And then when the, the Messiah was born, when the child came, the devil fought the Lord Jesus Christ with all his fury. First tried to seduce him uh, by pledging him all that was already the Lord's to take. He fought him openly when that failed through demonic power. And then thinking he was winning, he incited the men the hearts of men that put the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But of course, failing to understand that through the cross came our ultimate victory in God's as well. Amen. Nevertheless, Satan today rages on. Still having a heart of animosity as the adversary against God and all that is his. He's trying to decimate the beauty and creation of God. And one day in the Tribulation, once again being emboldened by the removal of the Church, the release of countless demons, will wage a final war against the woman, against Israel, who he still thinks maybe if he can somehow destroy Israel he can thwart God's plans. And of course we read about this and have, and we'll do so more in the book of Revelation. We know that the seventh trumpet has sounded and Satan for all practical purposes defeated, but he will not relent. In the tribulation Israel will be the specific target of Satan's attacks. Um, He will will still try to assert himself as the ruler of this world. But during these days, And we know how the tribulation works. It's it's bad in the beginning. In the last three and a half years, the great tribulation, things get much worse. There'll be a moment in the tribulation when the devil through the antichrist will assert himself, the ruler, the king of this world, the god of this world. We call this the abomination of desolation. And we'll get there a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ gives specific instructions for Israel to flee to the wilderness in these days. It's a reference to the text we're reading here. As a matter of fact, let's let's turn there. To Matthew chapter 24. Let's make a connection between this text and some words of our Lord Jesus Christ on the, um, on the Sermon on the Mount but his great discourse here. There was a question about the ending of the world made by the disciples. The Lord begins to give an answer. His first replies, You need to be ready for this day. But then he gives some instruction about and for Israel specifically during this day when the dragon, the great red dragon, will renew his war again in a great way against them, So verse 9 of Matthew 24, it says this, Then shall they deliver you to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. There'll be a price on the Jewish population's head, and they will betray one another, those who aren't ultimately saved in this endeavor. And many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations. And this shall the end come. We've already talked about the 144,000 Jewish people who are saved. We'll read in a moment about the angel of the sky who will preach. And the two witnesses that have come. And he says to them, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, described by Daniel and in the of Revelation, spoken by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains or the wilderness. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Let him that is in the field return back to take his clothes, and woe to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. Or these days are so evil. What a hardship for those who, who have a child. Verse 20, but pray that in your flight, that it be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, for then shall be a great tribulation. This, this the the, the uh, trumpets, Judgment of God falling the earth, the, the war of Satan fighting against this nation and, and those who follow Christ. There will be such a great tribulation, time of distress, such it was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No shall ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened. And by the way, they're shortened by the second advent, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And so this deception continues in verse 43. Then if any man shall, be, shall say unto you, Lo, here is the Christ, or there, believe it not. Uh, by the way, when Jesus comes by, you won't have to wonder if he's come back or not. Yeah. For there shall rise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, and so much that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say to you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east, you know, it's not hard to discern lightning, is it? You're going to know. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shining into the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And we're not talking about the rapture here. We're talking about the second advent. And then verse 28 describes the conditions, especially of Israel this time. He says, for wherever the carcass is. This is speaking of the decimation that is surrounding Israel, the carcass There will the eagles gather together, or those birds that would seek to consume it." And so Jesus speaks of the same days that John is referring to here in our text. And I know out of curiosity, before I go into the application, some may um, be quizzical about the seven heads and the ten horns and seven crowns upon the devil. Uh, I can't tell you with absolute certainty what those represent. In the Old Testament, the idea of a many-headed dragon as a beast that defiled Israel was presented several times. Um, Pharaoh was called a dragon, Ezekiel 29, Jeremiah 51. The same thing speaks of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Having many heads is described in Psalm 74, 89, Isaiah 51. So the idea is this, is that many people would believe that the seven heads... Um, a representative of seven empires in world history whose intended purpose was, in part, to destroy the woman Israel. And we can go back to the first great kingdom that really oppressed God's people, and that would have been, of course, Egypt, and they sought to enslave them. There was Assyria that destroyed Israel, there's Babylon um, that destroyed Judah. Um, there is Persia that oppressed God's people. There was Greece um, that had great indignity towards God's people. And then of course in the days of Christ, there was Rome, six great kingdoms that through the history of the nation of Israel have been there. And By the way, Rome being the last one of the six, Israel really ceased to be really important since 70 AD when Titus, the general for Rome, came and destroyed and sacked the temple. They, they were really like done as a nation, until really the early 1900s, when God regathers people back. So then, who and what is the seventh head, the seventh kingdom? Well, I don't know for sure, but most likely people believe that this will be a kingdom that will arise from the Antichrist, that will be made up of a ten-nation confederacy that will rule the world, that will be the finer, final oppressors of God's people in this way. Uh, whether that's exactly what's implied here or not, I don't know. I would say that's my inclination, but that's a lot to consider. But that is uh, what I might suggest. A great scene. But as you know, my heart in these studies, so you know, now we might think we know who the woman is and who the dragon is and the child um, and some things that might happen. And that's, that's, that's it's pretty extraordinary. But here's what I want us to think about. In our text, we are introduced in a detailed way, in a more detailed way, to an enemy of God. His name was Lucifer. He became the devil, Satan. Satan is a title, the Satan. And it means adversary. The Satan is the adversary of God. It is false, Satan chose to become this adversary. And he's he's opposing all that God is and all that God loves. Now look up here, including you and me. Now you understand this. Eyes here, please. Including you and me. Including us. We have discussed in some measure his purposes and schemes in attacking Israel, attacking the child, attacking God's people, in the coming chapters we will see the purpose of the devil played out in Revelation chapter 12 through 20. And in the text there's the sounding of the seventh trumpet which really ushers in these final seven vital bowls. It's kind of one big thing that happens probably within the course of weeks or months. And we already know Satan is defeated, which has been announced in chapter 11. But at present he is still loose. And all this vitriol and hatred, has not been diminished or distinguished. And the prince of this world still seeks to steal and kill and destroy. John ten ten. And though already defeated, Satan is still presently roaming about to seek whom he may devour. And First Peter five eight tells us this truth: Be sober, be aware, be vigilant, have your head up, circumspect, looking around, because your adversary. The devil, as a roaring lion, seeketh whom he may devour, consume. We're told in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against, an interesting word, the wiles, the schemes of the devil. I, I think it should be overly mystic, but you understand that there is a spiritual adversary that you and I have. And he has a scheme, a tactic, a military tactic. And it is to try to thwart the purposes of God, but we understand this because this is very personal, that this adversary probably has a scheme and a tactic to derail you personally. So, you are part of an army that belongs to God. Therefore, you are a target. Now, the more prominent role you play in the target, the more prominent role you play in the army, the, more, the bigger target you may have on your back. That's probably true. And if you're somewhat indifferent, Satan may not waste too much time with you. But evidently, a lack of guardedness in our lives can lead to spiritual influences corrupting our hearts and mind. Do you understand that? That's why we're supposed to be aware. I could spend an entire sermon series on putting what it means to put on the spiritual armor of God and Satan's schemes, but for the few minutes we have left, I want to present one simple way today and in the future you can most effectively protect yourselves from spiritual intrusion. And I want you to think with me about this. And that is by making sure that your thinking and that your lifestyle and that your views and your philosophies are grounded okay, everybody look up here in truth. Yes, sir. Don't get caught fighting all these mystic battles. You want to protect yourself spiritually, you stay, and you uphold and you live the truth. In my opinion, it's the greatest thing that you can do to protect yourselves from the adversary, the devil, who seeks to devour you. Because if he can get you to believe and or participate in a lie, then in some measure he is one. One of the chief characteristics of Satan, our adversary, is his deceitfulness. Over and over and over he is called The deceiver. And he is a deceiver. Think with me. His own beginning as the adversary of God began in delusion when he allowed his own heart to believe a lie. He believed that he could ascend to the throne of God. He believed that he could rise up to the, to the mount of the congregation in the north. Satan, in his own heart, started his existence as our adversary, the devil, by believing a lie in his own heart. And these lies have propagated ever since that initial day when sin was found in him. He believed that he could be like God, that he could live with autonomy apart from God, that he could marginalize God. And in that lie, he himself became distorted and perverted and ruined. He began his corrupting influence on creation with a lie. He goes to Adam and Eve and he speaks untruth. And he poses this question, hath God really said He's trying to get these people to believe the lie that if you partake of this fruit, that you could be like God. The same lie that he himself believes, and this has never altered in his tactic. He believed a lie. He has presented lies. He has a long and infamous career as a liar and coming to this world and creating deception, and he has destroyed humanity with lies. think with me. Satan has propagated lies about creation. I I don't want to be insulting. I don't want to be unkind. But how can anybody with half a brain believe, despite all sound science, logic, and mathematics, that we arose from nothing? Nothing. The creation itself cries out that there is a creator. It's so obvious in common sense. But Satan has told us, he's instructed us, he's taught us through through sources of very high authority that you've come from muck and monkeys. And see, he's so good because it's grounded in partial truth. We, We can witness the principles of natural selection, the survival of the fittest. There's no lie in that. But to suggest that you go from natural selection to evolutionary process, which is a biogenetical process that defies the laws of, the therm- of thermodynamics and mutation, which by the way 9990 percent of mutations are lethal. Somehow against all those odds, you and I, not us, the majority of mankind believes that we arose from muck and monkeys. Look up here. That's not science. That's a lie. These are lies spoken into the hearts of semi-intelligent men, supposedly, that have run with this lie because of the rebellion in their hearts and refusal to accept, look here, the truth. We were created by God and we were responsible to Him, and we will be held in account before Him one day. It is rebellion. It's a lie about creation. We've been told lies about our origin. Satan has been telling lies for centuries about the nature of humanity. Oh, you know what? We are Tabla rosa. We, we, we are born with a clean slate. We are only corrupt because of corrupting influences. Well, my friend, where do you think corrupting influence came from? There's no such thing really as good and evil. These are just moral standards artificially created by men to, to, to uh, you know, salve their conscience or something. This is not good psychology. This is not any kind of science. The truth about who we are is we are all obviously Uh, manifest daily, we are sinners. I am so sorry if you can't see that about yourself, go look in the mirror. and If you can't see it, we'll tell you that you are. We are born from the womb speaking lies. We are born with a corrupt nature. We are born spiritually dead. It is so obvious. You don't teach, you don't have to teach young people to be evil. You have to teach them how to be good because evil is our natural inclination. It's a lie of Satan about origins. Satan has told us lies about our, and this is just like his agenda currently. He tells us lies about our sexual identity. I mean, again, I just, this stuff just, I don't get it. Okay, with clear, obvious, evident, binary physiology and anatomy. Oh, my word, how simple is this? And that simple binary physiology requires, is required to produce another human being. Like it's the only way it can happen. It takes one of both sides. We are being told somehow to believe in multiple genders. It was three, it was four. Last I counted, it, it was seven. Like where? This is not science or psychology. It is confusion. I, I, I'm not beyond suggesting that people are born with some genetic factors that, that may influence it. I don't know. I, I absolutely believe that there are environmental factors. It doesn't make any difference. There's a design, order, creation of God that we're to live in. Just as I am to live happily with that woman back there, one man and one woman forever, that's God's design. I might have lust or think that would take me outside of that design. If other people have those kind of desires, I don't want to tell you, but that is confusion. God did not author that. That is coming from one kingdom or the other. That's right, right. And I'm going to submit and suggest to you, it's a lie. Amen. And in this room, there are people who believe the lie. Amen. And it is, it is insanity in light of the evidence to the contrary. Satan lies to us about the source of happiness and joy. We think it's out there somewhere chasing something other than serving God. Well, good luck with that, that's a lie. There's a heap of mankind resting upon riches and tangible items and the things of this world. Salt water, you taste it and you want more and it never satisfies. Many have erred from the faith chasing things other than God because of the lies of Satan. Even though we are forgiven, we struggle when the deceiver comes to us in our failures and says this to us, you can't be forgiven. You're beyond the reach and grace of God. People like you, oh, you there's no way God's going to forgive you for that. And Christians believe the deceit, he, that's what it he is: is, he's the accuser of the brethren. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the truth. The liar creates unhealthy guilt and doubt, robbing us and stealing our security. I could go on and on and on and on, but first and foremost, forever, I want you to understand this today, presenting the text that Satan is a liar, he is a deceiver, and he is seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. And the best way to combat all of this attempt is with the truth. When Satan came to Jesus, suggested he believed some lies, Jesus' reply was quite simple. It is written. What you're saying is not the truth. This is the truth. I'm not against studying science, mathematics. Obviously, I think, we, I think we should do more of that. We should be educated. We should be informed. But there is no higher authority for truth than this book I'm holding in my hand. If you are a straight-A student and you know everything about everything, and your knowledge of this book is ignorant, you are going to be susceptible to the lies of the devil. If Solomon could be tempted to move away from a position of wisdom, why in the world couldn't you be? Satan came to Jesus, he said, it's written, here's the truth. And he stood on that. Now think Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, truth. Why, am I, why, why does Israel keep going after these dumb idols? No knowledge, I don't know where it came from. People are destroyed by not knowing the truth. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where there is no vision people perish. The word vision there means revelation. It means truth. Where people do not know the truth, they perish. You know what's destroying American culture today? Not politics. It's a lack of truth. Our culture does not embrace the truth. Proverbs 23, 23. Buy the truth, sell it not. We look at the social agenda and we understand that's lies. But every time you're stubborn and you stay in your seat when God speaks to your heart and you should respond, you're selling the truth. When God tells you to become a better man and you refuse to do it, well, I, you know, I, I'm, just, I, I'm just not gonna do it. You're selling the truth. Today we would do, do, do ourselves such a great service, honor to God if we do the truth, believe the truth. In Ephesians chapter six, the first guiding element of putting on the armor of God, spiritual protection is being girt about with truth. As we engage in life, we will no doubt engage the adversary. So be diligent. Be aware that the lies that you're going to be hearing, that are whispered and shouted and taught and indoctrinated to you, that as these are presented to you, that you filter those through thy word is truth, John 17, 17, through God's truth. Because you're going to believe this. Look, I'm almost done. Oh, it's really not that bad. Just take it down to where we can identify with it. You're going to say, it's, oh, it's, it's just a little sin. It's really not that bad. Well, there's an alternative to God's design for the family in marriage, in my marriage. Why would I love my enemies? That's unreasonable. Why would I be nice to people who are mean to me? Surely that's, that's, that, God didn't intend that. I mean, doesn't God know this is 2022 and we're a little more enlightened than that old thinking? (laughs) Don't buy the lie that being a spiritual leader isn't important, you guys. Satan has most of you um, just believe in the lie of indifference, complacency. You're going to believe that forgiveness and apologies isn't that big of a deal. You're gonna believe that truth is relative in the postmodern world? We're gonna we're gonna cling to pseudoscience, which is junk. I gotta stop. You you want to safeguard yourself against an eternal enemy who has a scheme for you? You young people, Lord help you. You hold the truth that is found in the pages of that old book, because that's truth. I don't, I don't care what authority or position someone holds, if what someone says is in opposition to these black words on this white paper, I'm gonna say with all authority, they are wrong, right? period. Hold the truth and sell it not. Let me ask you to stand.